seated. As you're doing so, please turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. It has been mentioned. We lit the love candle, the fourth candle together. Our text for this Christmas Eve, this fourth Sunday of Advent, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Christ Community Church, I love you. I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Um, we have a sick uh, little girl at home, and so Bethany couldn't make it. She was real sad about that, but uh, she loves you too. She wishes she could be here, but uh, we have kids, and you know how that goes if you've had children. So um, our text, 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7 through 12, the Holy Spirit says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. And that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. That we may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we ask now, Holy Father, that you would... Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray this now, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is the word made flesh. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired your prophets and your apostles to write your holy word. Amen. Well, some people like theater, and some people don't. Bethany and I like the theater. We like to go to plays, musicals, off-Broadway shows, and a few weeks ago, we went and saw Frozen at the Detroit Opera House. Uh, as you would assume, the play is based on the Disney animated film, but that the Disney film is based originally on Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. 
And so we're there. I'm, we're sit, we got uh, seats in the pit. So we're sitting in the pit watching the show. And I just couldn't help but think about today. I couldn't help but think about Christmas Eve and Advent and the theme of love. And it's because uh, one of the major themes of Frozen, one of the major themes of the Snow Queen is love. A constant refrain in Frozen is that true love will melt a frozen heart. And so it wasn't just the snowy setting of Frozen that led my mind to thinking about Advent and thinking about Christmas Eve, but it was the concept that love, that true love, melts a frozen heart. And the story of Frozen, the story of the Snow Queen is so popular, it resonates with so many people because it is our story. Just like Elsa cursed Arendelle, turning the summer into winter, Adam's fall has cursed the world and it has frozen our hearts in sin. From the farthest reaches of the cosmos to the depths of the human heart, the white witch of sin and death has invaded God's creation. And because of our sin, because of death, it can often feel like it is always winter and never Christmas. But therein lies the good news. Because Christmas has come. Aslan is on the move. And from the far reaches of the cosmos to the depths of the human heart, he has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That is what we have been anticipating for the entirety of this Advent season, when true love indeed became flesh and dwelt among us to melt our frozen hearts. That is the theme of this fourth Sunday of Advent. That is the theme of Christmas Eve this year, the love of God. Here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, written by John, the apostle who describes himself as the, the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John describes himself. And in this text, John explains to us the, the meaning of true love, the meaning of the love of Advent, the meaning of the love of Christmas. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, St. John reveals to us three things here in this short pericope that we're going to look at together this morning. Number one, the identity of love. Number two, the manifestation of love. And number three, the economy of love. The identity of love, the manifestation of love, and the economy of love. So first, let's think about the identity of love. What is love? My neighbor across the street from me 
proudly displays a sign that reads, love is love. What does that mean? Is love an emotional feeling? Is love a sexual feeling? John Mayer saying that love is a verb. Actually, DC Talk saying it first. If you know, you know. Is love a verb? At its core, is love action? Or is love an idea? Or is love a feeling? Is love commitment? Does love have an intrinsic quality at its core? Does love have an intrinsic identity at its core? What is love? Well, the Holy Scriptures gives us the answer here. And the answer is that love is an intrinsic and eternal reality because the Bible says love is from God. God is love. God is the one true, intrinsic, eternal, self-existing being. And here in verse 8, the Holy Spirit tells us God is love. Hatheos agape estin. God is love. Grammatically speaking, theos, God, is the subject of the phrase. God is the subject. Agape, the word love, that's the predicate nominative in the phrase. And the verb, estin, is, it's a copulative verb. What does that mean? It means it's connecting the two subjects, the two ideas. God is love. That word is kind of functions as an equal sign here. God equals love. God is love. So the identity of love, the intrinsic, eternal meaning of love is God himself. That's what the Bible says. But what does that mean? How is God love? God is love both in his identity and in his vocation. Meaning God is love both in who he is and by what he does. Love is the identity of God. Love is who God is. Scripture reveals to us and church history has ecumenically testified that God exists in Trinity. Orthodox Christianity confesses and does not deny that there is one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to say that God is love refers at least in part to the eternal, intrinsic, 
self-existing reality of the Trinity. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have an eternal relationship. An eternal dynamic that has existed between them for all eternity. C.S. Lewis has a great section in his work, Mere Christianity, where he discusses the eternal dance of the Trinity. If you have not read that, you should. It's good. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have eternally loved each other. They have eternally communicated with each other. They have eternally served each other. God is love. It's his identity. It's who he is. But not only is love the identity of God, love is also the vocation of God. Love is not just who God is. Love is what God does. Because God is eternally and intrinsically love, it means that everything that God does is loving. God cannot do anything that is unloving because he would cease to be God if he did, because God is love. God's work of creating was loving. God's work of redemption is loving. God's providence is loving. God's discipline is loving. Church, even God's wrath against the reprobate is loving because it satisfies his justice. And it glorifies him. Everything God does is loving because God is love. It's the identity of love. And the epitome of God's loving vocation. The most loving thing that God does. The climax of the love of God, John tells us here, is that God sent his son. That's what the pericope reveals to us here in verses 9 and 10. So verse 8 reveals the identity of love. Verses 9 and 10 reveal the manifestation of love. And the beloved apostle preaches the good news of God's love here in verses 9 and 10 with two emphases. He's got two points of emphasis that he makes. Number one in verse 9 The first one's in verse 9, the second one's in verse 10. In verse 9, John emphasizes that God sent his son so that we might live. That's the emphasis. God sent his son so that we might live. Then in verse 10, the emphasis is that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So let's take those one at a time. Uh, John introduces both ideas with similar vocabulary, you'll notice. In verse 9... He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. In this, en tuto. And then in verse 10, he he recapitulates it. He writes, in this is love. Again, en tuto, same words. So he uses the same phrase to to, to show us this is the same idea. This is two sides of one coin. The love of God is revealed. It's made manifest in that he sent his son so that we might live and that he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is good news. Because if it weren't for the love of God, we would eternally die. 
God sent his son. In this, the love of God was made manifest that he sent his only son into the world so that we might live. We need that church because we deserve to die. You see, in the beginning, our holy creator God gave the first man our federal head. He gave Adam his law. And God told Adam that if he ate of the fruit of the tree, that Adam would surely die. Genesis 2, 17. And of course, Adam rebelled against God and Adam fell in sin and then death spread to all men because all sinned, Romans 5.12. So because of Adam's original sin and because of our inherited sin, we all justly deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. Apart from God's love, we die physically and we die spiritually. Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But John says, because God loves us, he sent his son. Verse 9 says that God sent his only son. John, echoing another verse that he wrote, probably the most famous verse in all of scripture, John 3.16, for God So loved the world, for God loved the world in this way that he sent his only begotten son, his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his only son. Maybe the version you're reading says only begotten son. We just sang that in in some of our songs. That term, only begotten son, that is a little misleading I know for some of you it's near and dear to your heart. You maybe memorized the King James Version when you were younger. That's fine. It's okay. But the, the, the term is a little misleading um, because this text that we just read actually literally says that like, if we love, then we're proving that we're begotten by God. So in the strictest sense, Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is not the only begotten son in a, in a metaphysical sense, in a, in a sense that his, that's his only identity. Nobody else is begotten of God. John says here, you're begotten of God. If you believe the gospel and your love for others proves that. So how is Jesus God's only son? Jesus is God's only son in a covenantal sense, in terms of the covenant. Uh, that, that word only or, you know, only begotten, monogene, it what it means is like unique or special or one of a kind. Jesus is God's unique son. Jesus is God's special son. Jesus is God's one of a kind son. Jesus is God's covenantal son. The same exact word is used in Hebrews 11 to describe Isaac and Abraham. Well, Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son, but Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the covenantal son. So Jesus is God's unique son, his special son, his one-of-a-kind son, his covenantal son, because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus is uh, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. And he was sent to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We have sung that truth this morning. We have confessed that truth in the Apostles' Creed this morning. 
the, the, the eternal Son of God took on flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. This is the meaning of Advent. This is the meaning of Christmas. The incarnation of the Son of God. Not just a fairy tale from Christians of old that we've culturally inherited. This happened in time and space and it's the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. This is the reason for which the world was created. That the second person of the Trinity would become a human. That God of very God would become man of very man. To save us from our sins. It is because of the incarnation of the Son of God. It is because of Jesus' life that we can live. That's what John said, right? That God sent his Son so that we might live. Jesus had to live so that we could live. In his incarnation, the Son of God took on true humanity. Jesus experienced the true human experience. Jesus was conceived. Jesus experienced gestation in the womb of a virgin. Jesus grew physically. Scripture says he grew in wisdom and stature. That means his human brain learned things. He grew. He lived his life 30 plus years without sin, obeying God's law perfectly in thought, word, and deed by what he did, and, and, and he left nothing undone. He always loved the Lord his God. What Pastor Andrew read this morning for our call to worship, the, the Shema, as Israel would call it. Jesus always loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus always loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus never broke one of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed. He lived righteous. He lived law-abiding. He lived sinless. And what that did is that secured active righteousness on our behalf before God. God can look at you if you have faith and view you as righteous because Jesus lived it for you. Not only did Jesus live so that we might live, but after he died, Jesus lived again so that we might live. Jesus lives now. Jesus lives forever. He is risen indeed. Tim Keller said, Easter proves that Christmas is real. The resurrected Christ is the firstborn of the new creation. Romans 6 says he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Revelation says that Jesus has dominion over death. That Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. Jesus got in the ring with death and it was a TKO. Jesus won. And the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. It means that after we die, if we die in faith, that we will be resurrected. We'll be raised again. Church, God's love is made manifest in this, that he sent his son so that we might live. 
This is a spiritual reality now in your hearts. If you have faith, Jesus has raised your heart from the dead, but, but don't over-spiritualize this. Don't Gnosticize this. This is as literal as it gets. When Jesus returns, he will raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. Do you want to live forever? Like really live, genuinely live? That's what it's talking about. God sent his son so that we might live. And then in verse 10, John kind of turns the diamond here and gives us a little different perspective, a slightly different emphasis saying, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John humbles us here, doesn't he? He reminds us that we did not love God first. Don't you dare give yourself the credit. You didn't love him first. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. God loved us first. We did not choose God in our free will. God chose us in his sovereign will. The Reformed tradition has long correctly emphasized that God is the initiator of salvation. That regeneration precedes faith. God's love is initiatory. Our love is reactionary. And John says, how did God love us? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Propitiation. That's the Greek word helasmos. It means this, the means by which sins are forgiven. That's what the word propitiation means. Maybe you read a version that says atonement or atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word helasmos is often used to translate the Hebrew word for atonement or forgiveness. So Jesus is the forgiveness of our sins, the atonement of our sins. Jesus is the means by which our sins are forgiven. Jesus is atonement. Jesus is forgiveness. Jesus is propitiation. Jesus is halasmas. It's the picture in the Old Testament of the mercy seat in the tabernacle. Church, it is through Jesus' life that we can live, but it is through his death that our sins are forgiven. Because when Christ died on the cross, he offered up his sinless life to God the Father as the penal substitutionary atonement for us. What does that mean? Jesus is our substitute. That means he died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and to make atonement or to grant forgiveness for our sins. It means that on the cross, Jesus exhausted the entirety of God's just wrath against the sins of the elect. That's what happened on Good Friday. And now the most important question that I can ask you, the most important question that anyone can ask you, the most important thing that you can ever contemplate in your life is this. Is your 
faith in Jesus. How do you know? How do you know if you have faith? The first element of faith is knowledge. Do you have the right knowledge? If you have been listening, you have all the knowledge you need. God is holy. You are a sinner. Jesus lived and died and resurrected in your place. That's what you need to know. The second element of faith is assent. You can't just know the gospel. You must assent to the validity of the gospel. You have to acknowledge that it's all true. In your mind, you can't just think, well, Christians believe God is holy, people are sinful, and Jesus is the only way to be saved. You have to think that. You have to affirm and not deny that that is true. And the third element of faith is trust. You must transfer your trust to Christ alone. Meaning, you're betting heaven and hell on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is Jesus your only hope in life and death? Do you have faith? If so, if you do have faith, it will be revealed by your repentance. Your repentance reveals genuine faith. To repent means to confess your sin and to turn from your sin. It means to humble yourself and admit that you are a sinner and then to turn away from that sin and turn toward Jesus. It is not your repentance that will save you. It is only your faith that will save you. And your faith is a gift from God. But repentance is proof that you have faith. Notice they're, they're tied together, but they are distinct. Your repentance does not save you because there's nothing that you can do to be saved. It is only the faith that God gives you that saves you. But if God gives you the gift of faith, you will repent. Do you want to be loved? Do you want to feel the safety and acceptance of your Creator? Maybe you've never felt that before. Receive the greatest Christmas gift that you can ever receive. Receive the greatest Christmas gift in history. Open your eyes to the love of God. Holy Spirit, we ask right now you would open their eyes, whoever it is, to the love of God. They can't see it on their own. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, then what? What after faith? How, how do we live? How shall we live after we have believed? John has 
revealed to us the identity of love, God himself. God is love. We have seen the, the greatest manifestation of God's love that he sent his son so that we might live and so that our sins might be forgiven. The good news of the life, death, and resurrection of the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the third point, the rest of the pericope reveals to us the economy of love, the community of love. In verses 7 and 8 and verses 11 and 12, John's main point is that Christians, in response to God's identity and in response to the gospel itself, we ought to love one another. In verse 7, John encourages us. He says, beloved, let us love one another. Notice that the apostle emphasizes love even in the way he addresses the church. He calls us the beloved. The loved ones. You know, in most of John's letter, he refers to the church as little children. He is the apostle who brought them the gospel. They are his children in the faith. He calls them his little children, but not here. No, here they are his beloved. Because the emphasis is on love, and he's calling us to love. He's reminding us that, that we are the ones who have been loved. He uses the same adjective again in verse 11, beloved. And so here in verse 7, this is a call to action. Let us love one another. This isn't merely a suggestion, church. This is a call to arms. Pastor Kevin rightly said earlier that Jesus has won us a great victory. The victory is won, but there are battles that ensue. And we are the church militant. And this is a call to arms. That we fight the forces of darkness by loving each other. We've got no choice. John says because love is from God. John says that when you love sacrificially, you prove two things, two realities. First, it proves that you have been born of God, begotten of God, is another term. So you think about uh, the third chapter of John's gospel. We've, we've alluded to that already, where Jesus says, um, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So John's saying the same thing here. Your love for one another proves that you have been born again. If we love others sacrificially, we prove that we've experienced the new birth. We just sang it, didn't we? Born to give them second birth. That's what it means. So that's the first thing. The second thing is our love for one another, Christians loving other Christians, proves, John says, that we know God. A better way to translate is that is we are currently knowing God. Now, that's not the most grammatically polished way in English to translate it, verse 7. But it really conveys what John is emphasizing. Because that verb know, it proves that you know God is a present active verb. He's saying that it's, it's proof that you continue to keep loving. It's, it, you continue to keep knowing God. Your love is proof that you are knowing God. It's a present active love for God. God John then contrasts that in verse 8 with the one who doesn't love. John says, if you do not love sacrificially, you don't know God. 
John's emphasis here in verse 8 is that you don't know God at all. A lack of love proves that you do not know God because a lack of love is antithetical to the nature of God himself. God is love. Then in verse 11, John writes, he says, Beloved, again, he addresses them as the beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I love the ESV. It's my favorite translation of scripture, but it's a little soft on this verse. It's a little soft. A better translation of the Greek would say, Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also owe one another love. That'd be a more literal translation. Christian love church, is our duty. It's our duty. We owe it to one another. We owe it to one another because of the gospel, because we have been bought with a price, because we are not our own, because Jesus is Lord and his law is love. Then in verse 12, John shifts from emphasizing God's incarnational love, which we looked at earlier, right? The Christ event, the incarnation of the Son of God. John now shifts to from God's incarnational love to our incarnational love. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Does that, does that language sound familiar to you? It should. If you're familiar with John chapter 1, this sounds very similar to what John writes at, uh, in like verse 17 or 18 of John chapter 1. Um, it's verse 18. He says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. Right? That's what he says in John's gospel. That's at the end, the end of the whole section where in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. So now here in 1 John, he says, no one has ever seen God, same exact phrase, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So Jesus Christ revealed God's invisible, or the invisible God to this world. Now here in verse 12, John says the same thing about us, that our love for one another reveals God to the world. Our love for one another is evangelistic. It preaches the gospel. Church, how do we love one another? We worship with one another. We pray for one another. We serve one another. We hold one another accountable. We disciple one another. We show hospitality to one another. We meet one another's needs. We eat with one another. We laugh with one another. We cry with one another. Everything the scripture says about how the community of God relates to one another. This love. Self-sacrifice for another. Do you love your brothers and sisters here at Christ Community Church? John says if you don't, you might not be a Christian. 
Church, our love for each other is evangelistic. It preaches the gospel. It reveals God to the world because God is love. And God manifests his love by sending his son to be the propitiation, to be the forgiveness for our sins so that we might live. And the only reasonable response, beloved, is that we ought to love one another. That's the constant refrain that I kept hearing that made me think about Christmas. Only true love can melt a frozen heart. The interesting thing in the story, in the play, in the film, is there's a twist on what true love means. See, you think the whole time, throughout the whole story, you're led to believe that what this princess with a frozen heart needs is a kiss from a prince, from true love, because true love is what thaws a frozen heart. But it turns out in the story that it is actually self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice for, for a sister, for the same sister who froze her heart, that is the true love that ends up thawing her heart. And you know what? That's true, isn't it? I mean, that's just like intrinsically true because the truest love in the history of the world is the self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus who came to thaw our frozen hearts, to thaw the frozen hearts of the siblings who killed him. God is love. God's love is made manifest through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. So, beloved, let us love one another because this is Advent. This is the love of Advent. I love you. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you would give us faith first and foremost. We pray that you would keep your promise and that your word would not return void. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of anyone and everyone here in the gathering this morning who is not trusting in Jesus alone to save them from their sins. Father, we pray for your people, for Christ Community Church, that we would be a loving people that we would love one another, that we would self-sacrificially love one another, not just during the holidays, not just when we feel good, not just when we have excess, but, Father, that our community would be marked by love because you are love, and your love was made manifest as you sent your Son, and so we should love one another. Father, we give you thanks for your grace on our church for 81 years of perseverance. In spite of our sin, in spite of our weakness, not because we loved you first, but because you loved us first. Father, we ask as we come to the Eucharist this morning as we commune with you at your table that you would give us thankful hearts. That as we taste 
the bread and as we taste the wine, that we would remember that that baby lying in a manger would grow up and his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for us and for our salvation. Father, we ask that you would make our hearts believe and that our disposition in thought, word, and deed at the Eucharist and in all of life would be to pray as your son, the Lord Jesus, taught us to pray when he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.